Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome back to the Reformed Dissenters. We are the show where Reformed Christians dissent against popular ideas of culture by asserting a biblical world view. I'm Bruce Johnson, joined of course by my brother Jacob Johnson. Hello everybody. And today is the most relaxing episode you'll see all week. Kidding! It's our literature episode and um, it'll be anything but relaxing as we'll be discussing today. Um, not that it's going to set you on edge, but maybe a little. It's going to be exciting because we are starting a brand new book, God Rest Ye Merry, by Douglas Wilson, Why Christmas is the Foundation for Everything. Really cool book. Um, we've kind of gone through parts of it before. Um, I know I read through bits of it last year, um, and we've just really enjoyed it, and we're only in chapter one. So that's what we're going to be discussing today is chapter one. To give you a bit of a overview of of what this book is all about it takes it, it's trying to revive a renewed interest in christmas so recently and when i say recently i mean the last couple decades christmas has kind of become this thing where jake you know how there's usually okay we know what it's supposed to be not just christmas but things in general we know what it's supposed to be as christians because we have the bible but the unbelievers don't. They just kind of do it because they do it. And then eventually, because the next generation doesn't know, their parents were just like, oh, we just do it this way, right? Next generation is like, ah, I don't want to do it at all. <laughs> How about that, mm-hmm. right? And the Christians have no rebuttal because we're just like, well, actually, we don't know why we do it either. We just have this really good feeling and we don't want to lose it, you know, <laughs> which is like, yeah. no, yeah. you don't double down on that, you know, <laughs> that idea. Um, so, so this book kind of like attacks that idea of just like, well, it's just a really nice thing. We're just remembering the birth of Christ. And, and that's really all it is. It's just such a nice holiday. It's like, it is so much more like there are so many more dimensions to it. And they've been there since the beginning. And that's what's really cool about especially this chapter. We delve into all those, but also he pulls in, oh my goodness, like every Christmas song imaginable <laughs> and lists hmm. all the different parts of the Christmas songs that are just so powerful. And and they're just hidden under the surface and we take it for granted. We sing Didn't them every get year. get that section in the chapter. Sorry, Jacob. <clears throat> that was my section. <laughs> And we sing them every year, but we forget what we're singing. We just gloss over them. And what we're singing is powerful post-millennial stuff. So anyways, this is going to be quite the episode, and we're really excited. Uh, but before we get into all that, we have to do what we always do, which is talk about our verse of the week. Wednesday, of course, means Jake does that, and he has got quite the outline set up today. So dude, take it away. What are we talking about today? Uh, so... A verse this week is Psalm 24, verse 9 through 10. Uh, verses 9 through 10. And they say, Lift up your heads, o, ga- o gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Again, that was Psalm 24, 9 through 10. Um, and I have been tasked with that. I think this is the first week in which Bruce came to me in a text and was saying, Hey, I want you to, I want you to talk uh, and go through this, this section. And then he sends me a, a, a piece of uh, Calvin's commentaries. Uh, and so in really like, this is specifically what he specifically wanted me to talk about <laughs> was lift your heads. O ye gates. And I think with that, I think uh, we can combine that with and lift them up, O ancient doors. 
So we're, we're kind of talking about this, um, these, these uh, inanimate objects in a sense um, being, well, and I'll speak about this a little bit. Um, it, it's not a very long section. It's quite short. Well, I mean, I guess it's, you could consider at least, at least a third of, of this, um, of this paragraph. Um, but with, I, I, I can now, I'm speaking with a little bit of help, uh, from Calvin and I, I, I can attempt to bring out the greatness of these, these few words. Uh, Calvin's commentaries state God's temple on earth is a sign of heaven on earth. So speaking about this, the, the lift up your heads, O gates and ancient doors, we're speaking about the temple. We're speaking about this, this great magnificent temple in, in the, in the, uh, Old Testament days. Um, God brought down a sliver of heaven to the Israelite people. And you know that through the, the courtyards, the courtyard was where most people could congregate the inner, the inner courtyard, uh, was another place and it was a little bit more sectioned off. And then no one was allowed in that final section. If we, if we look at, um, the temple that Solomon built, it was magnificent and it had elements to it that resembled heaven. So this was a sliver of hell, heaven down on earth. Um, now, uh, the the temple was magnificent, right? It adorned with so many great things. Uh, Bruce wanted me to seriously point at this: <laughs> the fact that this temple was beautiful, that it was it was amazing. The the things that Solomon made it out of the gold, the the mm. the precious wood that it was made out of was was very vital and important to show that that sign of heaven. Um, but now that temple has been dashed and the veil has been torn. Uh, uh, a lot of that was talked about in this chapter and that's why I kind of brought that up. However, however, how, sorry, however sad that may seem versus Christians, this should be joyous. Now we have a world where Christ is bringing heaven to earth freely through God's law, not just in a small temple, but through the whole world. Um, I bring up the, the uh, Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, through the Great Commission and Christ's death and resurrection, he, God is now bringing heaven to earth and bringing the magnificent glory of God to all the world, transforming it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. So I tie this in with our our uh, section today, speaking about how did that all happen. There's this uh, this idea of Christmas is helping us understand all of this. So yes. with that said, Bravo! That was stupendous. Yeah, and and the reason I kind of I asked Jake to tackle that section was a because I knew he could do it just so well, just like he did, <laughs> um, but also. Because that's one of the weirder parts of that verse, right? It's strange. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like, what do you mean, gates? Rise, rise your heads. Your, the heads of the gates. What gates have heads now? What, what's happening, right? Um, but the way that Jake heads could have gates. Uh, gates could have heads on them, you know. Yeah, little yeah, right? of the head and like... yeah. Um, but inanimate objects, regardless of whether they have inanimate heads or not, don't move or think or listen. <laughs> 
And so I think, you know, I was like, oh, what is this? And so really glad Jake expounded on it. So thank you very much. Um, so moving into moving into this very beginning of this chapter, we kind of split things up a little bit. I took the first half. Jake took the second half because it's big. They're they're very large. The book itself doesn't look big, but what's in it, there's there's quite a lot here. And so we tried to divvy it up as best as we could so that we would cover as much as we can. But always, we have to say this whenever we start a new book, probably tired of hearing it by now, but maybe, maybe that will translate to some action and you'll go and buy the book. <laughs> That's our intent. We want you to go buy the book. We are not an audio book. We are simply commentating, commentating, commenting or comment, whatever. We're commenting on some of our favorite things uh, in mm -hmm. the book that we, we most enjoyed. Uh, in a sense, I would, I would liken it to us reviewing it without spoilers. Yes. Trying, trying to review it the best we can without giving you too much so yes. that when you actually buy the book, when you should yeah. buy the book, that it won't be all spoiled and that there will actually exactly. be some new stuff. So we're yes. pushing you to, to look at this and see that this is, this is something that you should read, something you should go and get. At least also, most of the books. We're that learning we so much from it that we're like, we want to share some of this too. Like <laughs> we're learning so many cool things. Let's share little snippets of what we've learned. Um, and so that's these episodes. So get the book. It's on canonpress.com. You can get your copy. It's really good stuff. Uh, but the opening quote, and, and actually Jake and I have been going through a lot of these opening quotes for a project we're working on. We hope to unveil hopefully next week. We'll see what happens. Um, but the opening quotes of these chapters are so good. This chapter opens with this. Bethlehem was the opening gambit in the last campaign of a long war. At the beginning of our world, scarcely had our race fallen into sin and darkness, but our father God swore that the seed of the woman would have vengeance upon the serpent, promising us a glorious deliverance. That sets the scene for everything else, right? When we when you get to <clears throat> when you get to the book of Matthew, it's assumed that you have all the history leading up to it. That's why there's a genealogy, right? That's why that's important. All that history, it matters immensely to what's happening. This, this really is the opening gambit in the last campaign of a long war. And if you have no context on that war, then this seems just another bump in the road. But it wasn't. This was the beginning of the most magnificent victory that's ever occurred in the history of warfare. A um, little bit later, page 15, he says, quote, um, talking, sorry, I have to give some context for this one. I was just going to go right into it. I have to provide a little bit. Um, but he, he was talking a lot about promises, right? Because of this victory, because of um, the, the massiveness of this victory, words escape me right now. <laughs> um, because of all of that, there are huge promises that go along with it. There are guarantees. There are, there are blessings, right? We've talked about covenants before, you know, blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. Massive blessings are now possible and are coming to this earth because of this victory, right? And so a lot of times we come up with all these different excuses for, no, 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 that can't, that can't be right. Did you read that? That sounds insane. There's no, there's no way this earth is going to be Christianized before Christ comes back. You're crazy. Okay, that must be, it makes so much more sense to push that off later, right? So much more attainable after God burns the earth and everything on it 
and starts fresh. I mean, reset buttons are so much easier than pulling out the weeds in the garden. Let's just burn the whole garden, you know? Let's do it, right? But that's not what God's doing. Um, and so we like to kind of stifle those promises a little bit. But uh, Doug Wilson's response here is, is really good. Uh, page 15, he says, quote, because these promises stagger us, we've developed a workaround, something to keep us from feeling the crushing weight of God's promise, uh, promised goodness to our world. That workaround consists of pushing the fulfillment of his promises out past the day of resurrection, safely storing them all in a time when, we are, when we're allowed not to think about it. End quote, right? So we're allowed to just push those out. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to think about, you know, the, the greatness of, of God's glory transforming what looks hopeless to us. But nothing's impossible to God, right? We see time and time again, God loves doing that, right? What looks impossible, he loves to say, nope, nope, I can do it. I can take a little ragtag band of people who have no military training and cause them to win against one of the greatest nations in the world. Uh, and then I'm going to do it a couple thousand years later too, <laughs> right? So um, God loves doing the impossible things, but we like to say, no, 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 that couldn't be. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make human sense. And so we push it out. I'm going to move on uh, a little bit. He talked a lot, spent a lot of time at the beginning of this chapter. That's probably my absolute favorite part of this whole chapter, uh, at least the part that I read. Um, Jake, I'm sure we'll have a favorite part in his, uh, the parts that he's going to talk about. But at the very beginning, he spends like, two pages, literally stringing together verses from most, like every Christmas song you've ever sung, right? Stringing them together and showing the, the common overarching theme be between almost all of these songs. And it is immensely positive, but it's also global. And the, the, the far reaches of the promises that we sing every Christmas without even realizing it, because we take it for granted, are incredible. So this, this one quote from page 16, quote, The nations are gathered before him. On behalf of those nations, he is risen with healing in his wings. And so we summon all the nations to join us. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. Um, and, and there's so much more. I don't want to spoil it. Again, you should get the book. Um, but it's just, it's so poetic the way they're all weaved together. And it's like, oh my goodness, that was there the whole time. The, the powerful, positive, all-encompassing story in all of these Christmas songs. Um, Joy to the World is, is a perfect example, right? Um, but, and then at the end, oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Um, and then nor, uh, nor hath I seen or ear heard, hath attained to hear what there is, uh, what there is ours. All of these different, all of these different things come peasant king to own him. Um, anyways, there's, there's so much there and, and it's worth reading through those. Finally there, he spent a lot of time talking about three different kinds of irony. I'm not going to get into the details of a lot of these um, just because there's so much more context that needs to be laid down to actually understand them all. But, but the quote from page 17 that kind of sums this up a little bit is quote, the first Christmas was the time in history when God began announcing his mastery of irony. And it is also the time when the worldly wise began their fruitless attempts to studiously ignore what he was doing. <laughs> End quote. Um, I love that. Studiously ignore. And, and it's like it's their fruitless attempts to ignore what he was doing. And, and that's that's really good, too, because so often... You know, it's like, oh my goodness, that we're doing all these things, we're doing all this work, and the world's not paying any attention, or they're not, you know, reacting, or what the heck is happening, right? 
But the funny thing is that that doesn't matter because eventually they're going to have to, <laughs> right? And, and you keep doing what you can. You keep doing the best you can, working for the kingdom, working to Christianize the town you're in, working to Christianize wherever you are, working for that. And whether they fruitlessly try to ignore you or not, you keep going, right? And so because eventually it's going to be impossible. That's why it's, it's fruitless for them to ignore you because ultimately there won't be any option, <laughs> right? Because it's not you who's doing it. It's Christ. Um, so these, these three ironies he's going to, he talked a lot about in this chapter are the irony of time, the irony of power and the irony of love. Um, so he talking about one of them, he said, quote, uh, our use of irony, if it is to be Christian must, must be a harmonious echo of what God has done in Christ. So that's where these ironies tie in, right? These were all demonstrated in what Christ did. Um, so talking about the irony of time, the irony of power, the irony of love, all of those can be wrapped up in Christ's work being born a man, right? And not separating his godly nature, which is an enigma all in of itself, right? <laughs> um, but then also having what, what we're going to go on to talk about or what he goes on to talk about left-handed power, so right-handed power is just the straight up, yeah, we've got power. Woo, left-handed power is a little bit more subtle, but no less powerful. It's the power you get when you submit to authority, right? It's in your left hand, but it's equally as potent. It's just a different sort. And so when Christ did that, he humbled himself, became a baby. That was left-handed power. It's that, it's that authority that someone gets when they've humbled themselves, um, and it's, it's, it's very interesting to study. So we talked a lot about that in here. Uh, and then obviously love, the irony of love, um, sacrificing, the sacrificing of love, but not sacrificing at a dead end, right? Not sacrificing just for the sake of sacrificing, but it's a love that, that conquers, which is an enigma. It's ironic. It's, it's different, right? So really quickly, I'll throw in two quotes and pass it over to Jake. Um, one quote here, page 18, he said, quote, if all things work together for good for them that love God and are called according to his purpose, then this means that billions of plot points are going to, are going to come together in the most satisfying cathartic release possible at the end of all time. And this is talking about the irony of time. We see all of these disconnected things. Oh, that happened. Oh, this person died. Oh, this person, you know, was given this inheritance. What did they do with it? I don't know, this other person did something else. You know, all these random life occurrences that to us look very random. But in the end, all come together. We've seen that happen over and over. Even just in our own personal mm -hmm. lives, we can see those connect, right? But also look at biblical stories. Look at what happened at the birth of Christ. This, this faltering nation hobbling along Israel, barely clinging to godliness of any sort, right? Ready for judgment somehow produces the king of the world. God uses them through all these interconnected plot points to produce that because that's what he promised, right? And he's also promised us that the whole world will be Christianized. The whole world is his kingdom and that will be redeemed. And so through all of these random things that we can't understand, to us, it looks like failure, millions of disconnected things. Wow, this is so random, but it's not. And that's one of the ironies of time. Um, it all comes together in the end for those who love him.
And, and that's all I'll get to because he talked about the incarnation. He talked about the song of Mary. Um, he talked about how one of the worst things Catholics did is make us run from Mary and we pendulum swing the other way. And we try to say, you know, don't give her any attention. Don't, you know, don't talk about her, even though she's called blessed, even though she's called all these things in the Bible. No, no, no. Don't pay attention to that because we don't want to go too far and worship her. Right. But that's a problem we have. We need to, we need to watch that tendency to hmm. pendulum swing. So anyways, talked a lot more about that, but I'm out of time. So Jake, what do you got? The last half of this massive chapter. Uh, so I don't know if there's anything you can speak to in the fact of um, on page 31, uh, Doug Wilson starts out with a quote, um, or at least I'm picking up this quote from the book. Um, he starts out talking about, um, in a sense, neutralizing Christmas. And I don't know if you could give us a little bit more context on that. If not, that's fine. Um, um, yeah, I think part of it, we're going to be talking, by the way, we're going to have an episode on Friday where we're talking about how is Christmas post-millennial. And this is going to play into our conversation a ton. It's a huge part of our conversation. So I won't give much of that away. But I do think, like I was talking about in the beginning, it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in these traditions and for them to just be traditions mm -hmm. without passing yeah. down and understanding why we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing, right? Like we forget why we sing that. But it's so powerful. There's so much there if we took the time to actually listen to what we were singing, right? Um, so I think that's one way we, we neutralize it. I don't know if that answers your question. A bit, yeah. Um, so I'll start with this, uh, this quote on page 31. Uh, which says, there is no such thing, in the last analysis, as a vacuum holiday, a celebration without a point. Attempts to neutralize Christmas are simply an intermediate step, and the, uh, and the alternative meanings are waiting in the wings. So, in a sense, so, and that's the end of the quote, sorry. Um, in a sense, what's, what he's talking about is the fact of we need to neutralize Christmas and the meanings that we have are ready to it, and now we need, and then we have all of our alter alternative meanings and the right meanings waiting to bring them in mm. when we neutralize it. So, um, hopefully that kind of sets this, the rest of this up. Um, I'll continue on. Uh, Pastor Wilson continues to, the, to point out some facts and people surrounding the birth of, birth of Christ. He first spoke of the star prophes prophesied long before as the star of Jacob coming down, coming to burn and destroy. Um, there, there is way back with, um, Balaam talking, uh, Balaam was a prophet talking to the king about, uh, about prophesying about this star that will come and destroy, uh, the sons of, uh, uh, what was it? Sheel, 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 Sheesh. I don't know. Uh, sorry. Um, I'm trying to remember the name at this current cry, moment. But, which is more than I would have done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> at least but, you tried um, to pronounce it. <laughs> right, right. And that's the that's the Star of Bethlehem. What we know as the Star of Bethlehem. And how the fact of that this star... And, and he was talking about the miracles. How modernists, you know, try and like... 
with our with our um, now our enlightenment thinking, we try and negate these and bring these down from and make them less than miracles. Bring some scientific meaning to them when mm. there shouldn't be. These yeah. are miracles, um, and that this star actually came down and was sitting right above the house that this that that um, uh, Jesus was in. So. How can this ball of gas and fire come down all into the Earth's atmosphere and sit above this house without burning anything or without blowing up the Earth or whatever, you know? Yeah. But these are actual miracles. These are things. And, and the way that the verse is played out, it's not just this, this, it's not just this star shined bright in the sky. It's not like it just shined bright in the sky and was just above the house. No, it actually says it was right above. It was like right there above the house. It was there. They yeah. saw it. So, and he speaks a lot about that. If if people are still wondering a little bit more Aren't about there, that, he did, talks does about he go that into in maybe it's somewhere else he goes into it, but talking about how it's not just a big ball of gas like what we think it is. Like yeah. these stars that are talked about are not just big balls of gas, right? Mm -hmm. There's something else. They're, they're yeah, living. he does they're... talk about that more in that in that section. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that's around between thirty-one, verse thirty-one and verse forty-two. Sorry, ver I'm saying verse, but pages. Sorry. Um, but also uh, on page forty-two, he speaks about the three wise men, or the where the psalm comes from, we three kings. And he's speaking a little bit about their kingly nature and how they're not necessarily kings, but we can derive why we think they're kings. So, and I'll continue on what I mean by that. On page 42, Doug, uh, Pastor Wilson says, Despite the carol, these, three, these men are not described as kings, but there are good reasons for treating them as members of the ruling aristocracy, as men who could be Sorry, who could decide to go to visit a king. End quote. So, Doug Wilson points out that this event symbolizes the future kings of the earth bowing down to God. These people mm -hmm. were like nobility in, in their different things. And, and he does bring this up further throughout the chapter, throughout the pages. So, go to those pages, read those for those. For those specific things, I don't have the time to go into all of that. But, again, he further proves that these three were of nobility and had kingly attributes. But, the fact of these people coming and giving their gifts to Christ is that these kings are bowing down to God. These kings are giving stuff to God. They're giving what is owed to God. Um... Also, I'll move on. I have two quotes that are kind of like back to back. Uh, the next one on page 42 is, so what is, uh, and I'm sorry, I'll go straight into the uh, quote here. Uh, and it says, so what is this, this story doing here? The clear intent is to sh uh, show us that Christ is a king and he is the kind of king who, receive, who receives le legitimate worship from nobles. Uh, that was on page 42, uh, just right after that. And again, this is to kind of show the fact that Christ is a king. And, and 
what it specifically says here, the kind of king who receives legitimate worship from nobles. So hopefully that's that's good enough for people to yeah. accept. <laughs> uh, on page 44, and I'll continue on with this quote, uh, um, Pastor Wilson says, John's gospel begins with the word in the beginning. Uh, sorry, begin, begins with the words in the beginning, deliberately echoing the first words of Genesis, Genesis 1.1. Just as God created the heavens and the earth, so in the, the arrival of Jesus, he was recreating the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. End quote. And this was super interesting to hear the fact that this is, these, these words from John were the exact replica, or not the exact exact, but they were a replica of Genesis 1-1, in which when God created the earth, this is, a, in a sense, the same type of thing being said, now coming into the new heavens and the new earth, which we are in today. Uh, and Bruce and I have talked about this before, but Christ came and recreated the world. There was so much language around salvation as born again, or in a sense, a cosmic do-over. Uh, a chance for humanity to retry at Eden, and this time follow God's commandments. Let's not eat that fruit again. But also, Pastor Wilson explains that if we are to celebrate Christmas, we must enjoy it because God is king over the world. We can't enjoy Christmas. We can't believe in these things. We can't celebrate Christmas without that understanding. And consequently, we can't enjoy anything without that understanding. Uh, and I come to my last two and final, uh, sorry, my last quote here. Um, on page 50, it, it starts, But in the life of Jesus, Israel finally does it right. And he does it right on behalf of all Israel, all who are gathered into him by faith. And Jesus, the human race, lived and obeyed perfectly before God in a way that the first Adam did not. The, that obedience of the Lord's is imputed to us, given to us, bestowed upon us, reckoned as ours. In the life of Jesus, Israel finally stops doing it wrong. But not only did the new Israel do it right, but he finished his life by sacrificing himself as the blood atonement for all the wickedness committed in the course of the previous failures of the imperfect Israel. So, Jesus is the reconstituted humanity. He is the new world, the new creation, refashioned in the new heavens and the new earth. He is the reconstituted Israel. And with that said, that is the last quote. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Jake. Um, yeah, so we, we hope this was insightful to you uh, in the audience. Um, this I give you a good look at what uh, this chapter is about. But of course, we um, weren't able to address even a half, even half to three quarters of what was in, in the chapter. So of course, check it out for yourself. Uh, check out our show website, trdshow.net. Send us an email, trdshow at protonmail.com is where you can send those, trdshow at protonmail.com. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you on Friday. So I know we normally say our ending tagline here, but I thought I would add this final bit. The way that uh, Pastor Wilson closes out this chapter, it seemed quite fitting to close out our discussion with this uh, uh, quote. 
and it's kind of a prayer. It's kind of uh, an ending prayer in a sense. Uh, so I'll just uh, begin with the quote. Our Father in God, we entrust ourselves to you in the name of Jesus, asking you to continue to fashion us a true childlike humility through the power of the Holy Spirit. Please receive our worship in and through the obedience of our wor- of, of our Lord Jesus. Amen. And remember, everyone, in all that you do, do it as unto the Lord.